Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we looked at verses 15 through 17, where Jesus received and blessed little children. We could say Jesus received those who had really nothing to give to the kingdom of God, and yet here Jesus, as it were, turns away someone who could have given much to the kingdom of God. It's interesting to see the, the contrasts in this beautiful text. All three of the synoptic gospels speak of this man who came to Jesus as someone who was rich, wealthy. In Matthew, we learn that he was young. And in Luke, we see, verse 18, he was a ruler. Likely, he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Here's something to consider. We, we can't say for sure, but it's very possible. This man was part of the trial of Jesus not that much longer. And so based on all three Gospels, this, this man is called the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler. And, and what a testimony we have to the perfection of God's law, but the perfection of Jesus Christ. We'll, we'll consider that theme. This man thought he, he knew the law, that he had fulfilled the law, and here he dares to stand before the only one who is perfect and say, yes, I've, I've done it all. So the perfection of God's law, the perfection of our Lord, the, the danger of wealth in terms of seeking after it, wanting it, but above it all is the greatness of God and his grace. The greatness of God's grace, both to save and to bless. So we'll look at this text in, in two parts as it's divided, verses 18 through 23, and then verses 24 through 30. In verse 18, we read, A certain ruler asked him. A certain ruler asked Jesus a question. And notice he calls Jesus good teacher. 
It's a polite term. Rabbi would be the equivalent. But we can contrast that with a blind man. At the end of the chapter, a blind man calls Jesus son of David. A messianic term. A blind man can see who Jesus is. This rich young ruler can only call Jesus just a a good teacher. He's missing something. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What should we think of this question? Is it humorous? Is it uh, sad, misguided? Uh, The word inherit in other places is sometimes used of receiving salvation. For example, in Matthew 25, verse 34, we read, The king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, verse A, or 6, 9A, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit to be given eternal life. In in his view, he would inherit, he would receive eternal life based on something that he would do. Now, he might, like the Pharisees, say, oh, it's gracious, but in the end, it's based on what he would do. As we read the Gospels, there's much that we learn about interacting with others, how to bring a witness, but of course, we're not Jesus. Jesus knew the heart of this man. When someone comes to us, we can't see through them like Jesus could see through anybody who came to him. Jesus was able to interact then with this man on a level we could not. So Jesus first probes the fact that this man does not have the right view of himself. And then he shows he doesn't have the proper view of God's law. And that, we can say, is essential to bringing a witness. People have to understand not only that they cannot keep God's law, they have to understand sin, they have to understand who Jesus is, the Messiah. So Jesus asks a question. He's asked a question, and As we notice often in the Gospels, Jesus would respond with a question. That is something often that is good to do. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. What what is Jesus doing here? He's not downplaying, of course, his own divinity. But this man is exposed as someone who doesn't properly recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. John Calvin explained Jesus saying this, if you see in me nothing more than exalted human nature, you falsely apply to me the description good, which belongs to God alone. So Jesus exposes this man is not coming to Jesus recognizing who Jesus truly is in his view. Jesus is just a a good teacher, someone who can help him answer an important question, but, but that's it. Jesus also then directs the man to the commandments. You know the commandments. And here we can say Jesus is directing this man to, to recognize God's law is perfect, but it is impossible that we could obey it to earn salvation. 
There's, there are several interesting passages in Leviticus and in the book of Ezekiel. We have this set of God's law. He that does these things shall live in them. I understand and following John Calvin, God's law is perfect. If you could obey it, you could receive eternal life. The problem is not God's law. The problem is we have no ability to ever do what God has commanded us perfectly. But God's law, as it was given, it is perfect. According to Jewish tradition, there are 613 commandments in the law. 365 are negative, one for each day of the week. 213, or excuse me, 248 are positive. So 613 commandments, 365 negative, 248 positive. Isn't that fascinating how much we're commanded not to do, but also the, how many things we are commanded we must do. In Matthew, the man asked Jesus which ones, which commandments. Here in, in Luke's account, Jesus directly gives some of what we call the Ten Commandments. And, and which commandments does Jesus give? He begins with the Seventh Commandment, then the Sixth Commandment, the Eighth, the Ninth, and finally the Fifth. He, he doesn't give them in the order that we're normally used to thinking of them. And these commandments are called the, the second table of the law. Sometimes commandments one through four are called the first table, our duty as it were to God. Then commandments five through ten, our duty to man. And I think there's something helpful in that. Why, why does Jesus give these commandments? I don't know that anybody can give a definitive answer. But Jesus may be giving these commandments to probe this man further Many at the time of Jesus would have thought a good Jew is someone that doesn't murder, doesn't commit adultery, doesn't steal, etc. Just like the, the Pharisee who goes up to the temple to pray and says, Lord, I, I thank you that I'm not an extortioner, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer. Uh, there's, a, there's a parallel, verse 11, and the commandments that Jesus gives in verse 20. Many people today think, being a good person means you don't hurt other people. And the only definition of sin today is something that might hurt someone else. If it doesn't, quote, hurt someone else, then you're free to do it. So Jesus may have been playing with the, quote, accepted idea of a good person before he exposes, indeed, that this man is not a good person. So notice this man, verse 21. All these things I have kept from my youth. Uh, in my Bible, that verse is directly next to verse 9. A parable that Jesus told of those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. It would take a, a great deal of pride to stand before Jesus and say, I've done it. And yet, isn't that the natural attitude of people to think I'm pretty good I'm ahead of the curve certainly now I don't know if we're, we're to think Jesus is leading this man as it were to into a trap but but Jesus does give the perfect response doesn't he he, he knows this man 
He can see him externally, but even more, he knows him internally. So Jesus says, you still lack one thing. And that one thing is the thing he's not going to want to do. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So Jesus actually exposes, no, this man is guilty. He has broken the first commandment. He loves his money more than he loves God. He's broken the tenth commandment. Probably we can also say he's covetous. He, he loves his possessions again more than he loves God. If he's broken the first and the tenth commandment, he's broken a lot more in between. But this passage is, is also, again, it's a very powerful rebuke about our natural inclination, which is to think pretty highly of ourselves. This passage, we can say, it's also a warning. As, as we receive it, it, it is a warning for those who claim to be believers. Make sure, indeed, that there is evidence that your life has been changed by the power of God because it's relatively easy to give lip service to the gospel message, isn't it? How many people in our nation claim to be Christians and say, oh, I believe in Jesus, and yet there's no evidence. There's no fruit. Since we live in a nation that we can say is relatively free, professing Christ for most people costs very little. For some cases, there's a, there's a price to pay, but throughout the majority of our nation, you can be a Christian. I think the, the greatest cries of anguish on the day of judgment will come from those who said, Jesus, I, I believed in you, or I, I'm, your, I'm one of your disciples. Just like uh, Jesus said in, in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. We also can say this, the demands that Jesus gives upon us are, are absolute. Now, some focus on whether this passage means we also have to sell all that we have and, and live as paupers. I don't, I don't think that would be the command. Certainly, Jesus did not go around giving that command to every single person he met. He can, though, call us, in a sense, to live this way. And to this man, he did tell him that. And, and notice, he says, you'll have treasure in heaven. Yes, you're going to have to give up much, but believe me, there's more that you'll have. Certainly, this passage is not what some would claim, quote, Christian socialists, that we should give all our money to the government so that they can help the poor. That's not what Jesus is saying. But, but consider this, what Jesus demands of us in terms of his service is absolute. Many people want Jesus to be their life coach, their therapist. No, Jesus is Lord. He's not just to satisfy what we want in life. And so, as we read this passage, we are to consider Jesus demands everything of us. Meaning, every dollar, every moment, we are to see, we are to be in service to our Lord. We all fall far short of that absolute demand of perfection. That's why every time we reread the Gospels, but all of Scripture, we, we recognize how much we have failed and we pray, Lord, 
help me to live more and more for you. This man goes away very sorrowful, verse 23, for he was very rich. And verse 24 says, Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful. It it was obvious this man hears the words of Jesus and, and doesn't want to obey what Jesus has commanded. He wants to hold on to what he has rather than hear the words of the master. So Jesus gives several statements that caused astonishment among the disciples and the others. First, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And then verse 25 really shows this means impossible. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The camel was the largest animal in Palestine, the Middle East, in Israel at that time. Uh, There's an element of of humor in the words of of Jesus here. One lexicon says, especially because a camel has a hump, it could not go through the eye of a needle. And some have suggested, well, maybe the word camel means a cable. And, And the words are right next to each other in a lexicon. But a cable can't pass through the eye of a needle. Others have argued that maybe there was a tiny gate in Jerusalem and camels would have to squeeze through that gate to get through it. But uh, other sources say, no, there was no gate called the eye of a needle at the time of Jesus. So what Jesus is saying, it's impossible that a rich man would be saved and enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25. Now, perhaps it's worth mentioning the rich at this time, probably we would compare them to the billionaires of our own age, people who have so much they wouldn't need to even think about working if they just wanted to live off of all of their wealth. Would we say as, as middle-class Americans, are, are we rich like what Jesus is saying here? In some ways we live better, but uh, I think there would be some points of difference. Now in Matthew and in Mark we read the disciples in particular were astonished at the words of Jesus in verse 25. Why? Because many would have understood wealth is actually a sign of God's favor. The wealthier wealthier you are, the more blessing than that God has given to you. And, And we can say people like Abraham, David, Solomon, they were very wealthy people beyond our own ability to consider it. So the disciples are shocked to hear the words of Jesus. Now, it must be said, it's not just rich people who cling to possessions, right? Sometimes the poor, they they want wealth just as much as the rich who happen maybe to have wealth. So the disciples, those who heard it, verse 26, said, who then can be saved? They, they understand very well what Jesus is saying, that it's impossible that a rich man can be saved. So Jesus says the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. But isn't that true about the salvation of anyone? And we answer, yes. The warning of Jesus still stands. God is 
able to save, of course. The things that are impossible with men are possible with God. God alone is able to save. He must save everyone who is truly brought into the kingdom of God. A poor man has to experience the same grace as a rich man. And yet there is still a warning. Why? Because we might say the nature of what it is to seek after wealth, the the drive, the focus that people who want to get wealthy, how that shapes their thinking. Uh, What's so beautiful is how Scripture fits together. The words of Jesus, later the comments of the Apostle Paul, it's all Scripture, right? That should not surprise us. But listen to 1 Timothy 6. This is a familiar passage. You've heard it, I'm sure, many times. I'll start with verse 6 and read through verse 10. 1 Timothy 6, starting with verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and snare. You could be poor and have that desire to be rich. You can be rich and desire to be rich and fall into that temptation and snare. Obviously, verse 10 says it's the love of money, not money itself. The love of money. These are not the only sins, but Jesus and the Apostle Paul are calling special attention to them. Obviously, as sinners, uh, none of us could ever enter into heaven on our own, but you can say there are particular sins that do ensnare people, and that's what Jesus is highlighting. Those who have much, they, they don't think they need anything more. They have all that they need in this life. They're very satisfied simply with the things of this world. What, what, what need is there to think about eternity when I have everything now? That, I believe, is what Jesus is highlighting. But notice the response of the disciples. And this is the beauty of Scripture. It speaks to us at, at so many levels. The disciples want to say, but Lord, what about us? In terms of all that we have sacrificed. Peter, as the the spokesman, we're not surprised to see him speak. Look at verse 28. See, we have left all and followed you. There's emphasis on the we. Probably in contrast to the rich young ruler. But Jesus, look at, we've given up everything Jesus, to follow you. We're not like that rich young ruler who is going away sad. We've given up everything to follow you. What benefit is there going to be for all that we have given up? And again, we can say this. This is a very common among believers. We, we love to speak in lofty Christianese. 
but often we're very much focused on what's in it for me. And so Jesus gives response to that. Verse 29, he said to them, to his disciples, but we can say to all believers, assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, that's a, that's a fascinating list, isn't it? We, we should be careful in, in reading this. This is obviously not speaking of sinfully leaving our parents or a wife. How, how does one leave his life, wife for the sake of the kingdom of God? I'm reminded of the story of uh, Richard Wormbrand when he was at the, the big meeting where the communists are, were saying to all the churches, if you go along with us, you can live in peace. If you don't go along with us, you won't live in peace. And Richard Wormbrand faced the situation. Would he stand up at that meeting and be counted for the sake of Christ? And it was his wife who said, I don't want a coward for a husband. She encouraged him to, to stand up. And so, yeah, he had to leave his wife for approximately 14 years in obedience to the things of the Lord. We, we have been praying for those who have been in prison for almost 20 years. So verse 29 is a reminder of how much we are called to sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. It may be everything that you are called to give up. We also then notice, verse 30, there is a reward both for the present and in the age to come, eternal life. But we have to be careful in understanding what Jesus is saying here. Do all believers enjoy an equal share in the material blessings of this life? The answer is, of course not. Not all believers are going to enjoy the blessings that we would say of this life in an, in an equal way. And it's not that God is unfair, but we live in a sin-filled world. There are those who are probably more diligent more creative, more self-sacrificial. And God blesses them because they don't just waste all of their money. What about the, the believer who, who wastes all his money and then looks on the person who has and, and is jealous? That's wicked, isn't it? That's, that's greed and, and covetousness. We also can say, as Americans, what a blessing we have been given still to live in this nation. But I, I think what Jesus is saying here, verse 30, not if you follow me, all your dreams will come true in this life, because that's not true, is it? We know that's, that's not true. But whatever is sacrificed, we will one day be able to say, it was nothing. And what God provided by his grace, was even greater than what we gave up. Listen to this. There's a sense where there is no sacrifice if we are truly following the Lord. Because whatever we give, he gives more. If you give me $20 and I give you $100, you haven't sacrificed anything. And the same thing is true. If we are serving the Lord, whatever it is we give up, truly, the Lord's payment is even more. 
2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, I think helps us understand some of this. 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's such an important verse. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That, I believe, is exactly what Jesus is saying also in verse 30. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. John Kelvin said this, Yet God gladdens his people so that the small portion of good which they enjoy is more highly valued by them and far sweeter than if out of Christ they had enjoyed an unlimited abundance of good things. Though persecution always awaits the godly in this world, though the cross, as it were, is attached to their back, yet so sweet is the seasoning of the grace of God which gladdens them that their condition is more desirable than the luxuries of kings. Those are strong words, but I think in agreement with what Jesus has said. Truly, then, there is no sacrifice for the kingdom if you consider what we give up and what we get back. The Apostle Paul, again, said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Whatever it is that we are called then to give up, we can say God will more than adequately pay back. That requires great faith to believe that. Indeed, we, we don't, if we're honest, it doesn't always seem that way. But we have to know our Lord is the best accountant, the one who will keep track of things far better than we do on these matters. We, we often speak of the perfection of God's law in terms of salvation. But this passage reminds us also of the, the perfection of Jesus Christ. And again, thinking about God's work of salvation, would we ever dare on the day of judgment stand before Jesus and think, Jesus, yeah, you did most of it, but I finished it. I mean, how foolish, how foolish it would be to say that. It's one thing to, to claim, I've kept the law, but to think to stand before Jesus and think, Jesus, you did 99% of it, but I, I finished the 1%. How, how ridiculous it would be to say that. So both God's law and the perfection of Jesus Christ humble us to say, it is only by your grace. There is a danger then that we have in simply seeking after the things of this world, but let us be grateful. The Lord and his grace are greater than our sin, greater than the power of wealth. If God blesses us, then we have an additional responsibility. If God has not blessed us as much, we can still say whatever it is that we give up in service of the Lord, he pays back more. We serve a gracious God, a gracious Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, for the perfection 
of your word, for the perfection of our Lord, we thank you. We are convicted. Oh, Lord, you know our weaknesses and frailties in this life. We don't want to be Gnostics, Buddhists, and say, oh, this world doesn't matter. But we want even more, far more, to put these things as your word defines them, to see the joy of service to our Lord, to know that you are the best accountant and you, by your grace, give so much more than what we ever give. Refresh us and encourage us in these things. Oh Lord, we know there are other details. This is not the only passage, but how important that we give due consideration to this powerful truth. Refresh us by your grace, we ask.